I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today needs no introduction, and I was thrilled to be in his office this morning to tape this podcast. I met Mayor Marty Walsh at City Hall for the first time a few years ago when I met with him to share the results of a pilot that we were conducting with Boston Public Schools, Food Nutrition Services Department, and members of his team. This pilot has become an extraordinary program called My Way Cafe, which has completely transformed the way we provide school meals for our students in the city of Boston. This work is documented in a new film, which was just released on iTunes and Amazon Prime. So here it is, straight from City Hall, my conversation with Mayor Walsh. Good morning. Thanks for coming to City Hall today. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. We're excited. Good things going on in our schools and especially around food. Yes. Uh, a lot of great things happening. And I know we're going to have a good conversation about that and probably touch a few other topics that are important to uh, the people and the kids of our city. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Um, well, why don't should we start with Eat Up? Because it's out now. Yeah. It's on iTunes and Amazon Prime. It launched on Friday. And um, the movie, as you know, documents the work that the city of Boston and Boston Public Schools and the Shaw Foundation did together to completely transform school food in BPS. Um, have you ever been in a feature length movie before? I don't think so. I think it's the first time uh, I had a sign. Uh, my state representative for me, uh, my state representative, Marty Walsh sign was in a, a film once, but I wasn't me. Seriously? You know, yeah. What film? The, a selfie. They were filming it over in um, South Boston and a friend of mine was in it and he said, do you have any signs? And he took a sign and That's the, the sign, awesome. my sign made the movie. Oh my God. So you're now in two. I'm in two now. This is fantastic. They'll probably start a special page for you. Pretty then. awesome. Uh, what's your favorite movie of all time? Oh God, there's so many. Um, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I love, um, there's a movie made about the Holocaust many years ago. Yep. Life is beautiful. It's a great movie. Okay. Uh, Man on fire. Yeah. Uh, with Denzel Washington. Yeah. Is another one of my go-to's. Great um, movie. Braveheart, you know, um, another You like one. intense movies. Yeah, they're pretty intense all yeah. of them. But yeah, those, those are kind of the ones that, that jump. Life is Beautiful is one of those movies people always kind of say, you like, you know, they never saw it. And it was just an amazing, powerful movie. What did you like about it? Um, just the whole story about a father trying to keep his son protected from the fact that he was living in a concentration camp and going through the Holocaust. Oh, man. Um, and it was really powerful. Yeah. It was Very a true deep. story, too. Really? Yeah. Who, who? How did you find it? Um, it was he won. They won an Academy Award for it. They didn't realize it, and, and it was many years ago. Oh my and God. I just went to it. it. Was in subtitles, and it was just a. Uh, it was really an amazing movie um, about um, that was filmed in um, Italy. Yeah. Um, and it was just it was really it was a very intense movie. Um, yeah. But it was it was just a really incredible movie. All right, I'm putting it on my list. I don't know that one. So I don't, I don't know how much you know about how this all started, but back in 2016, I was at the Mason Elementary School. I was there with a kindergarten class who was um, picking greens, and, and I was checking out their school garden, and the kids were awesome. After we did this little project, they took me into the cafeteria, which was then a satellite cafeteria. So it only had a warming oven, and... There was a single employee working there and a folding table to hold the food. So I spoke with the principal and I started talking to other principals and it sounded like improving school food was on the top of everyone's list, family, students. So I kind of brazenly called Dan Coe 
who was in your office at yep. the time as your chief of staff. And he said to me, you know, the mayor's been thinking about this and trying to find someone to work on this for a long time. Do you remember kind of in your first term thinking about school food? I'm yeah, guessing there are probably other things. I want to tell you, I'm gonna, once you finish your story, I'm going to tell you a story. Yeah, yeah. Probably happening at the same exact time. Okay, go, go. Um, I went to visit the David Ellis School in Roxbury. Yeah. And uh, it was on a Friday. Okay. And I um, went to the school and um, the principal met me at the front door and she was very excited. She said it was the first time in, in probably 16 years a mayor had gone to the school um, and she was explaining to me the population of kids that she has in her school. Yeah. Um, mostly, pov- most most of the children live in poverty. A lot of homeless families. Yeah. Um, and she was telling me a story of a little boy that 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 afternoon had gone into the barrel and taken an apple out of the garbage mm. um, and put it in his backpack. And she confronted him on it and asked him, you know, did he eat today? Yeah. And he did eat lunch at at school and had breakfast actually, but he was taking it home because there was no food at home over the weekend. Right. And I started to think to myself that, you know, when you think about our kids and when you think about what we talk about education, we spend so much time talking about about curriculum. Mm-hmm. We spend so much time talking about standardized tests. We spend so much time talking about teachers and everything else, which is all important. Right. But we don't spend enough time, are our kids truly prepared for when they walk in the front door in the school in the morning. Yeah. We don't spend enough time focusing on what are their challenges and obstacles they have in their life. Yeah. And when you approached me back in the day yeah. a few years ago yeah. with the cafe idea um, and having healthy food and choices, it was something that I was interested in because we had gone through the processed packaged food situation. Yeah. Um, Dan might have told you, you know, we, we had a bid out in the street and the biggest concern I heard from the kids was the food is horrible in the district. So yeah. we, we put out the bid a couple of times and it was, you know, processed food. And, and, and well, there's it, nothing else you can do, too, if you it, have nothing but warming ovens yeah, in it, school. And, and, and you know, it's, the options are limited. Yeah. And when you when you think about that and the kids not wanting to eat that type of meal or that meal that's in front of them and that's their nutrition for the day. Right. And quite often it's five days of straight nutrition Yeah. where the weekends we try to help in different ways. Right. Uh, it became a problem. So as you're approaching us from one end, yeah. we're identifying that there's a problem on the other end, um, not identifying, knew there was, and understanding that it's about if we want to truly turn our districts around, yeah. it's about comprehensively changing everything from the food to the, to the welcome in the morning, to the food, to the yeah. breakfast, to the lunch, to the dinner. Um, to everything that we possibly can do. Well, I have to say, I felt very welcomed by the city because I, you know, I, I hadn't done any work with the city before. I've done a lot of work in tech. And so when I was looking at the problem, my, you know, the first I tried, I just called different phone numbers yeah. and tried to get through to people, but obviously I had no pull, no one knew who I was. And so when Dan welcomed me into the process, I, I really appreciated it because I can't, I mean, I think now it's talked about as a great example of a public-private partnership yep. that's working. Um, but it, it it's hard to do, I would imagine. I mean, It's you, complicated because we have, and you knew this, you and I have experienced this firsthand, yeah. there's rules and regulations that we have to follow. Right. Um, it's not like it's a private foundation where you can come in and just arbitrarily change the structure, which is sometimes better. Right. It's government and there's, there's bid laws and there's, there's laws we have to go by, yeah. um, you know, which is frustrating. And, and I know when we, we started doing, I think, the first 15 cafes, that was that was one of our concerns. I mean, we had everyone lined up to do it. Yeah. And then we're, we're told you can't do it that way because you have to go follow the bid laws, even though right. a lot of a lot of it's donated labor and free labor. And uh, so 
that's that's frustrating. Yeah. Uh, but but unfortunately, that's government too, and, and I think that you know we come across that in a lot of different places too. And p- part of it's there is to protect the taxpayers' dollars, uh, and even when there's common sense in in the mix, that totally. it's like it's it's tough. But I think that um, I'm pretty excited where we are today. I'm yeah. pretty excited how far down the road we are. I think we're at about half our schools now and yeah. we have a good plan. I think the second round was better than the first rounds. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know how PFD, um, public facilities, does it. I mean, they have, what, eight weeks maybe to get in there? It's and complicated. 30 kitchens and yep. 30 schools. It, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, actually. But what's exciting is the kids. You were with me, I feel, what school we're in. And when, when the little kid was just amazed to fa- find out that we went through a wall to create a door <laughs> and he's like, Oh my God. Like it was like the biggest thing that ever happened in his world. Yeah. And I'm laughing like literally we cut it, we cut an opening in a wall to get to make the kitchen there. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, we're seeing benefits. I think the food consumption's up by 15% yeah. in the yeah. district. Yeah. Um, and the food is amazing. I mean, you've watched me go to the kitchens now and eat and the food is really amazing what's, i think it's awesome what's your favorite thing that's served at oh, it's, the, it's the broccoli <laughs> the broccoli is unbelievable that blows people away it's unbelievable i swear <laughs> to god it's like the best i've ever had you really uh, do push it on kids I, too when you're there yeah i do and it's like and they're looking at me like what are you talking about but yeah. i i think watching these young people be exposed to uh water with fruit in it yeah it's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. It's something that, you know, as a kid growing up in Dorchester, we didn't have that in my house. I mean, right. maybe we went away some, when I got older, yeah. we go to a resort and see lemon in the water. Like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Super fancy. Our kids never, the kids don't see that. Right. Um, understanding the importance of just something like that, drinking water, um, you know, having salad. And maybe years ago, there was an issue with salad bars and kids not taking salad out of salad bars. But this is different. It's presented differently. Mm. They might not go for the lettuce when they're in first grade or second grade, yeah. but they're going for the carrots and the cucumbers and the and tomatoes and everything else. And then as they get older, they, they start to they start to change and their, their taste starts to, to, to yeah. explore. Yeah. And I think that really, honestly, a lot of our... And, and we, listen, I grew up in a family, my parents from Ireland, and um, pretty much every night was meat, potato, and a vegetable. Right. Um, and kind of a soggy vegetable, yeah, right? Yeah. There was no, I, had, I had the same. There <laughs> was no fancy anything, and we didn't really explore things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, see, having young kids in, in Boston, where a third of our kids are from other countries, so the right. families from other countries, you know, exposing them to other food is important. Um, exposing them to other opportunities is important. Mm. Um, it's going to make a difference. I, I mean, think there's so. No question. And, and to go back to the little boy from the David Ellis, um, just having a good, strong, healthy meal for these kids um, puts them on a path not just to learn in the classroom, but to help them to be be healthy outside of the classroom. Yeah. And I think that that's key as we move forward here. Um, you know, um, and then as we enter into this conversation now about our district and working with Desi and in the 34 underperforming schools and trying to continually to turn our district around, the food piece is one of those. It's so people don't understand how underrated it is. It's, it's so important that that, that happens. Yeah. We, we don't have to reinvent that. That's right. And I think that that'll go a long way in turning our district around. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we actually, we hear every time I go into a school, I'm pulled aside by either a teacher or a principal who says to me, when My Way Cafe came into this school, our discipline rates dropped. And, you know, that's all right now, just people saying those things to me is very subjective. But we, we actually are going to study that to see if that is, in fact, true. Because I think you're right. When you start to tackle basic human needs in school, 
you know, it's, it's within the day where it helps them to settle, be fulfilled, and be ready to, yeah. for school. I mean, you t- we talk about in the recovery community being hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Yeah. Hungry is you're hungry. Angry is, is off of being hungry. Sure. Lonely and tired. Th- those are all things that we as a district yeah. have to understand th- the compassion of our kids. Right. Um, what frustrates me a bit is that there's so much conversation around our district and so many people have opinions about it. Uh, and no one wants to give the opinion to help. It's all taking shots. Well, and, and, and I think that yeah. what you did and, and what the foundation had done is is kind of just jumped in. And we had obstacles and we had tough meetings. There's yeah. no question about it. And we had you had tough conversations with people in the city. But at the end of the day, it's a common goal moving forward. And, and we're at a point now where within hopefully the next year, we have 120 cafes in the city of Boston yeah. that, that, that started off as an idea. Right. And no, it really it's very was an, fast. It's amazing. How, so but talk about that, though, because I think you're right. Like, we have to tackle mass loves, like lower, lowest tier of needs first. And so, and I think you're right as well. It can't only be the schools that tackle these other things, the angry and the tired and the safe. And so how, how do other private partners help help you and help the superintendent, you know, fortify the schools I think in that way. I think there's many different levels. Um, yeah. You know, when you think of, when I think about, um, you think about a school, um, I think listening to the leadership in that school to find out what the, what the challenges our young kids have. Mm-hmm. Um, some of, some of the parents is some of the families that we have DSS is involved in their life. Right. Um, and they don't know how to navigate that system. Mm. Um, and how do we, offer the supports to the family to make sure they're getting the services that, that they need. Right. Uh, how do we make sure that the teachers are prepared, that they can assist those kids as well? Yeah. Um, how do we make sure that um, if we can get corporate partners to come into our schools, what are the needs for corporate partners? It's not just simply writing a check or showing up and reading a book. Right. It's how do we integrate them into actually making a difference in the school yeah. um, and, and using using their expertise uh, to to you know adopt schools. And I think that's something that we have to do more of as we move forward here. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. Because I, I think a lot of kids that I've met now through this process don't have exposure to worlds that you and I have exposure no. to. And so it's not even in their... Um, set of expectations or intentions. They can't imagine some of the things that we just kind of hold to be true. I think there are a lot of kids, young people that work in the workforce today that didn't have the same experiences as some of our kids are going through either. And I think having a a glimpse into that world for them to be helpful to a young person is helps them grow as a human being as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that, you know, when I go to these companies, uh, whatever tech company it is or or even you know Wayfair, what have you, you have yeah. a lot of smart kids that grew up in very different neighborhoods. Yeah, you get a chance to expose those young people to seeing some of the challenges of urban districts, urban America. They can really benefit from it as well, and That's I right. think have a better understanding of what our kids need and what society needs. Um, you know, to go back to what you asked me earlier, we kind of tend to deal with a school as a school community. Mm-hmm. And what we really should be doing is dealing with it as individual students inside that school community yeah. to build that strong community. Yeah. And that, that starts with the kids and the parents and how do we put the supports around them and, 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 and the services that they need to be successful. Yeah. How do we make sure we have confidence in those families that they can do the work? Yeah. And how do we make sure that we give everyone the tools they need to, to move forward? Yeah. Um, it's not just about, as I said earlier, it's not just about test scores. Uh, they're important, obviously, and we're going to be based on the scores and the curriculum and what our graduation rates are and things like that. Yeah. And that's all well and good. Good, but I think that there's still so much more we can do. 
No, I, I think you're right. I, I mean, no, when you say every, you know, every student treat them all individually, I think that's exactly right in terms of how you get to the most improvement. The question is, how do you bear hug every student, right, and make them feel, help them? I think um, develop a sense of confidence and intentions for themselves, where they can really thrive and, and be great in the world. And it's a really complicated thing to do when you're fighting against the pressures um, of poverty and issues of safety and some of these really basic kind of it underlying. Is, you have to try and figure out how do you put them in a position of success. And I think yeah. that, you know, when you have to just think about the cafes, um, yeah, that's the first step. These young people are coming into school, they're getting a nutritious breakfast, they're going to get a nutritious lunch, and sometimes they're going to get a nutritious dinner, yeah. uh, depending on the situation. Yeah, uh, They have loving, caring adults in the classroom and in the school community that, that want to help them. That's right. And how do we expand the counseling efforts to help the parents so that the situation, uh, a young person is not just being educated in the school yeah. and then go home to a somewhat of a chaotic situation. I think it's how do we help those families as well understand yeah. the importance that they're valued and loved. Uh, and it can be done. We've seen, we've seen enough success stories around the country of people yeah. that have been very successful uh, in models like this. And it's just now a matter of being, um, it, it's not just putting money in the situation. It's about just making a real serious commitment to improving uh, the whole, the whole, the whole school, the whole student, the whole quality of life. So, what advice would you give to other leaders of other cities um, and other superintendents uh, if, as they think about, you know, making a move like this? I think, I think anyone I talk to agrees with you that this is an underlying. Um, platform yeah. for making change and then I think it falls apart because it feels hard and so do you what, what do you think about that take the criticism as a leader yeah if you're going to lay down the foundation and, and truly make a difference in young people's lives um take the criticism yeah don't you know I, I can sit up here and I can tout all the great events we've made and give you all the stats and tell you that, you know, over the last 10 years, you know, our graduation is higher. It bumped, it dropped a little bit this year. Yeah. I can say that more kids are graduating from high school, going to college. I can tell you all that stuff. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we still have two thirds of the kids in our district live in poverty. Right. A third in the kids, a third of the kids in our district are English is not their first language. Nearly 5,000 of homeless kids in our district. So as much gains as we're making, are we truly making a difference? And I think it's, I think I probably, when I first became the mayor, you know, the challenge of schools is complicated. And we looked at it as a micro way of fixing it, yeah. uh, kind of, or a macro way of fixing it, I should say, and looking from the top down. Yeah. When in fact, we probably should look from the bottom up. Mm. Um, in Boston, we've had, you know, in the last 10 years, I think we've had five or six superintendents in the city of Boston. Right. And really thinking about the core of the issues. The issue is go to the heart of the issue. Yeah. The issue is, is, is a lot of it is poverty. Right. And coming off of poverty is hunger. Right. Um, well, and safety too. And safety. Right. Addiction. Right. Mental health. Yeah. All of that. You go to the heart of it. And, and schools that are serving those families then also, that, that all of the repercussions of those things are coming into the schools, which yeah. I, th I think then makes it hard to it retain teachers. teachers. Exactly. I mean, the teachers, listen, no teacher goes into no teacher joins a profession to say, I want to be the worst teacher in the system. Right. They go in, they want to be the best. Right. And when they're dealing with um, very difficult challenges all day, um, it, it wears on them. Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have an opportunity here uh, in, in this coming year with the new superintendent, Brenda yeah. Gasilius, yeah. and um, with some of the foundation that, that, that the, the foundation has laid down and some of the other things we're doing in the district yeah. to really go into a very... Um, 
very surgical, if you will, yeah. um, way of, 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 of making great improvements. Yeah. Do you notice, I mean, there are great leaders in the city running, running schools that are just extraordinary, Unbelievable. right. And who are dealing with all of these con- conditions. And so do you, are there ways to attract more of those kinds of leaders to the city as we try to, I mean, this is like moving a mountain. This is not a, you know, decade long problem. This is a multi-generational problem where lots of people have made attempts at trying to shift it. And you're talking about shifting things that are inherently systemic. And yep. so we're talking 40, 45 years yeah. of, of district, um, yeah changing and, and not necessarily for the best. Uh, we I mean, have, you were, I was reading an article about you yesterday. You were a kid as busing took effect. Yeah, I remember being a little kid walking to school and, and uh, I was in St. Margaret's Grammar School and it was going to first and second grade. And yeah. I remember walking down the street at the corner of um, Columbia Road and, and uh, Pond Street and seeing the school buses pull up to a grammar school at the Russell yeah. uh, School, William E. Russell, and having escorts, police escorts, and not fully understanding what that meant because sure. as a kid, there was no, no, there was no real problems there at that point. Yeah. Uh, but understanding that, like this was just, can you imagine the tra- traumatic experience our kids had in their district? This whole generation of kids, right. all of a sudden, were on school buses now with with police escorts, right? Because people potentially throwing stones and rocks at the buses. It just, it just, it whole bad time in it's, Boston's history. It's totally crazy. I, I didn't really realize it until probably five or six years ago. I started reading about it and watching videos of oh my God. it. It's extraordinary. And, and Southie High kind of is the front and center yeah. point, point of that. Right. But it happened in Roxbury, happened in High Park, happened in other places. Yeah. And a lot of young people, I think, lost, I don't want to say they lost their childhood, but a lot of people were angry because that, that period of time in their life where they're supposed to be being educated they were basically thrown into adulthood. They were kind of in war, actually. Uh, it was war, and yeah. it was racial war. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we still feel the repercussions of that today right. in our district. Right. Many years later, and people say, well, you have to fix it. It's not that simple. Right, um, it's not that simple. And you have, you know, and today the other thing that, that I think is, 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 is a good thing, but it's challenging to the district, there's so much competition yeah. for our kids. Yeah. and. When, when the charter school movement started here in, in 1995, yeah. uh, a lot of our families uh, chose to go to charter schools. Yeah. Um, you have a lot, the METCO program has been around for a long time, so we lose uh, a lot of our kids are talented. Not, I shouldn't say talented, but parents that are more engaged in, in the system, um, finding ways to get their kids into the METCO program. Right. Um, and, and now you have private schools going after our kids as well. Right. With sponsors. So we, we lose a lot of kids, a lot of strong families right. to other schools. Right. Um, and, then, and then kind of you, you, you lose the heart, I guess, in some ways of the district. Um, and also, you know. Well, it's very imbalanced then. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, listen, when I became the mayor, this is a stat that just blows everyone away. We, have a, we had 125 schools. We had 22 different grade configurations. Mm-hmm. We had 22 different start times. If you were a business, you'd be out of business. And Boston just kept adding grade configurations. And yeah. that means K1, K2, K3, K5, K6, K7, K8, K12. There was no K4s in Boston for some reason. And <laughs> when, when you think about the, that complication, yeah. and then, then you have 22 different start times, so you have buses that are half full or empty going up and down streets of Boston, the district just it it's it's it was is being changed to fail. And it was that were we too scared to do something systemically? And so what we had done over the past decade before you came into office was we were just attacking every little problem as it came. Yeah, up. as little but, problem, but and not looking at it as a. You didn't look as a whole. Yeah. So we started a few years ago. We changed the model of the district 
to a, a, a K to six model, yep. 712, K8, 912. We're not there yet. We're heading, we're transitioning schools into those areas. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we had a conversation about start times, looking at start times. Um, you know, what it is is the better transition. Yeah. So if, if, you know, I, I, went to, I went to three schools in my life. I went to kindergarten at, the, at Edward Everett, yeah. which is a Boston Public School. Yeah. I went to grammar school at St. Margaret's. Yeah. And I went to high school at Newman Prep. Okay. So I had three three transitions, if you will. Yeah. Um, three transitions for most kids is probably the right size. Right. At some point, we have transitions as many as four or five for our kids. Right. That could transition from kindergarten to first grade, from first grade to third grade, third grade into fifth, fifth into sixth, sixth, sixth yeah. to eighth. And Without then, really knowing what even your track would be. I mean, I went to uh, uh, most of my elementary and uh, middle and high school was in one town where there are only three options for elementary school and everyone went to the same high school. So yeah. you kind of could predict where you're headed yeah. unless you're going to go to private school here. It's very hard. It's very different. We've, predict. you yeah. know, um, it, it's, it is complicated. And yeah. again, it's about creating, making tough decisions that yeah. are going to be important and sticking together on those decisions. That's something that really has to happen here. Yeah. So you've been in politics for the majority of your life. Yeah, I got elected. Uh, I got elected in 1997. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, 28 years old. Did you uh, know you were going to be in politics when you were younger? I wanted to be. I, you know, probably around high school, I, it, it interests me. Yeah. Um, I always had the, the desire. I was always involved in the campaign or something like that. Yeah. Um, I loved the the the. Uh, I love the action of the campaign. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, so I was always involved with somebody. Yeah. A candidate. Right. Um, and in 1996, my state representative, I was about a year and a half sober. Yeah. Uh, I just got out of detox a year and a half before that. And um, my state representative, Jim Brett, decided that he had won the primary, but decided he was going to leave and get a new job. Yeah. And I jumped in that race right away. Um, and I ran um, in that race. So Did it, you just feel like it's now? I, it's felt go like, time? I felt it was time. Yeah. I felt it was time for me. It was interesting because the year before Jim Brett, there was words that rumored he was going to leave. And I had pretty much newly been sober and I just wasn't ready for it yeah and and I thought the timing was just a little too early and I was a little nervous about it yeah but for some reason he ended up staying for a year and, and that changed everything huh. um and, and then when I, I ran for rep and um you know I didn't have any political people with me it was yeah. all neighborhood people yeah um and it was an amazing opportunity experience uh, being a state representative because it opened my world to a whole bunch of issues that I never realized that I would be advocating for or working on what was one of them that was surprised you the most? Um, housing, yeah. uh, homelessness, uh, recovery programs. Yeah. Um, you know, the death penalty was the first big issue I've had to vote on, 1997, yeah. June of 97. Uh, it was a very tough vote wow. at the time. Yeah. Um, and I voted against it. It, it, it the legislature, it was an 80-80 vote in the House, so the bill died. Um, it was a very tough, tough um, vote for me, for all of us, because it was the first time I take a big vote. That's a um, that's a big topic too. It was in 1997. A little boy named Jeffrey Curley had been killed, mm -hmm. um, and it was a horrible death he had. And and his family was his father at the time was advocating for um, the death penalty. He's changed uh, his position on it since then, mm. but it's it was a difficult time. And then 2004, when marriage equality came, yeah, uh, I, I I'd say that's my proudest vote because um, oh. when the Supreme Court came down with the ruling on marriage equality, a friend of mine, Liz Malia, state yeah. rep from. Um, from Jamaica Plain, called me up and she said, "You know, Marty, I need we need a, a white Irish Catholic straight guy um, <laughs> to help us." And you know, I, I viewed that as a civil rights issue. Yeah, of course, it was obviously. Yeah. And you know, um, 
fought for marriage equality and it was it was it was amazing watching that fight go on watching individuals representatives and senators really grapple with where are they going to stand on this side of history you know even in this state and in this city in 2004 is a different time yeah right. you know and, and right. i think you know you take tax votes and there's always going to be another tax vote yeah or you take a death penalty vote there's always going to be another death penalty vote this was like kind of a, a civil rights issue right in front of you right um and, and watching people you know really process what to do there and and now to that 2020 it's it's kind of like people laugh about the fact that we had that debate 16 years ago yeah it doesn't feel that long ago it doesn't feel long ago but it was yeah. a pretty tough debate i remember i had people approach me in the street yeah. yelling at me about my position on it wow um and you know i was at a civic meeting one night civic association meeting ashbourne hill and a young person stood up and he said to me are you willing to lose your seat over this vote huh and i told him i am yeah because i don't think he believed where I, my position was yeah and um, I said, but I'm not going to lose my seat over this vote yeah. um, because it's the right way, right vote to have. And so it's been, it's, that was a lot of fun working in the legislature. I loved it. Yeah. I was there for 16 years, um, 16 and a half years. And then uh, when Mayor Menino decided not to run, uh, I got a call the night before he was going to announce. Somebody called me to give me a, a heads up. Yeah. And I had a feeling, I wasn't sure if he was going to run, but I, I knew from the moment the race started, I got in the race. So why run a city when you were running? the state um well i wasn't really running well, the state. I was running, helping it, to run the state it was it was just you know having an opportunity to be mayor of boston yeah um being mayor of boston is is one of the most sought after positions in the country it's a great city right it, it's an amazing city yeah. and, and when you talk to like when you go to the conferences or conference of mayors and, and you, they talk about the cities yeah uh, you know i'm not exaggerating it's boston mm -hmm. it's new york mm -hmm. it's chicago it's los angeles yeah of Those course. are the cities they talk about. Right. And being the mayor of Boston is just an incredible opportunity. And, and there's so many great things about our city, the history, yeah. uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the positive and negative history. Do uh, you think the role of mayor is becoming more important? given absolutely. Just given how, like, the chaos that I, I think our country You know, in? when I first became mayor um, in 2014, I was invited down to the White House by President Obama. Yeah. And there was a bunch of us that were new at the time. And what he said to us was, he had us all in his office. He said to us, mayors are the people that do the job. Yeah. And, you know, we create policy in Washington and, and legislatures around the country create policy, but mayors actually have to get the job done. Right. So whether it's fixing education or changing education, whether it's transportation, whether it's housing, yeah. whether it's environment, yeah. whatever it is, we have a direct impact on everything we do. Right. Um, and I think that you know having having a good mayor and having a good government in the city can really uh, direct how great successful your city is. Yeah. Um, and having a city that that has doesn't have a strong government um, can really have a bad impact on a city. Absolutely. And you, can, you can go. I'm not going to name any, but look around the country and see some of the cities that have had you know leadership that have been tough. Right. Uh, and see where those cities are heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, absolutely. Do you? What do you think is your biggest thing to tackle over the next couple of years for the city holistically? The two things I think that are the biggest things in Boston, um, well, there's more than two, but I'd say uh, housing and education. Yeah. Um, you know, making sure that people, Boston has become a destination for a lot of young people that are getting educated in the city and staying here. Right. That has always been the past. They've come here, got educated, and went back home or gone somewhere else. Right. So housing is a big crunch. And, and how do we keep our city a balanced city where people who are, who, who are uh, in the middle class, fighting to get in the middle class, can live here? Yep. And people who are, who are doing better can stay here as well. 
Um, that's one. Yeah. The second thing is education, not in any particular order. But if, if the educational system is not strong, then we're going to lose the base of young people we have, right. the millennials we have. Right. The future of our, our district, our school, our, our educational district, is really on the shoulders of the millennials. Yeah. Um, the kids that are coming into the district and yep. getting them engaged in the system yep. and forcing that change happens and that they stay engaged in the process. Yeah. Um, you know, mayors will come and go and there'll be new mayors and, and new mayors after that. Uh, but having dedicated parents in the district, it makes such a huge difference. Yeah. Um, on, a, on a macro scale, um, transportation is one of those issues, too, that we have to deal with. It's, it's not so much just a Boston issue. That's a, that's, a, that's a nationwide issue. I know. Where are the driverless cars? Um, they're I coming, were, I think. They're coming. They're, I thought my 16-year-old would never have to take a driver's test. He's probably going to. The 16-year-old is going to have to drive. <laughs> uh, but, but I think that, you know, they're definitely coming. I think that um, we have to make some major investments in infrastructure in this country. Yeah. It's crumbling literally around us. Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that's a, a bigger issue. But it's not going to affect just Boston. It's affecting everywhere. Yeah. So how do you think, so one thing I think about in my little world of school food is um, how do, and I, I'm sure you think about this in macro, how do you think about preserving or only allowing things to get better from where, you know, from the changes that you've made, you know, so you go on, you retire, I retire at some point, like we're not here to advocate for the things that we put in place. How, how do you think about that? I think about laying down a good solid foundation to be built on. Yep. And, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, uh, there could be two different people having this conversation, yeah. talking about food nutrition in a whole different manner. Yeah. Um, and hopefully building off of what we've been able to do here in Boston yeah. uh, and making adjustments and moving forward. It really is about a good, strong foundation. Yeah. Um, regardless of what you do, I mean, you think of all the great companies and great people in this world. Yeah. Uh, it's about the solid foundation that they set and build on that foundation. Yeah, and the great culture. That's a, I think that's a great answer. Yeah. So last question. I, I know that as a mayor, you probably sometimes have in inside intel. And so I'm just really curious, is Tom Brady staying? It's hard to say. I, I wish <laughs> I, I was listening on the radio. I mean, I hope Tom Brady stays. I do too. Um, you know, for, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, Tom Brady's a New England Patriot. Yeah. Um, you know, he's won six Super Bowls here. Um, he is the greatest quarterback of all time. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, for his legacy, I guess he could go somewhere else and win a Super Bowl. I guess. But um, he's going to be remembered a Patriot forever. And I think that uh, staying in New England Patriot, there's something about that, that that is not in society today, that longevity and loyalty to one brand. Yeah. And, and that's not here anymore. Yeah. Um, and it used to be years ago. And I hope, you know, for, 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 the, for the game of football, for the New England Patriots and for all of us here in New England, I hope Tom stays. Um, if he doesn't stay, you know, he still was, he gave us great memories. But yeah. um, having, you know, we can still win another Super Bowl with Tom Brady here at number 12. That's right. Absolutely. Thank you very much for spending time. This is today. great. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. Thank you for joining my conversation with Mayor Marty Walsh. You can see us both and the details of our successful public-private partnership in the new documentary film, Eat Up, which is now available on both Amazon Prime and iTunes. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.